0: I didn't introduce myself last service, so nobody knows who I was, if they were new last service, but my name is Brad. Um, it's, good to be, it's good to be with you all uh, this morning, um, get the opportunity to carry us through, uh, uh, through the series on the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and this morning, we're going to be looking at these next 11 verses, which happen to be a very practical section of the Sermon on the Mount for us, as Jesus is starting to zoom out a little bit more uh, to the general heart character and responses of the Christian, uh, the reality is, is that we are all still in the world. We're all still in the real world. We're not of the world, but we are in the world. We are to be salt and light of the world. Uh, we, are all, we all go to work with people who are in the world. Uh, we all go out and interact in our daily activities with people who are in the world. We have family, friends, neighbors who are all engaged in the world. And so the, question, the questions pop up in our mind. How do we as kingdom citizens... How do we, as disciples of Jesus Christ, engage and interact with people who are of the world? What separates us? More specifically, how do we love those who don't love us? Or how about this one? How do we love those who hate us? So grab your Bibles, open them up to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be in verses 38 through 48, as Bob just read for us this morning. And I will note... um, you definitely want to grab your Bible or open up the app on your phone, because we do not have it on the screen this morning, and that's my bad, but it is what it is. Grab your Bibles, open them up. Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 48. Uh, I want to start with reminding us of how Jesus started in this section of the Sermon on the Mount back in verse 20, uh, in, in order so that we might be able to grab a hold of the big idea. And then, We'll work through uh, kind of like the backdrop and where we've been so far, and then we'll narrow in on the last two heart commands or antitheses that Jesus gives in this section. Now, I know this is already familiar to those of us that have been going through this series together, uh, but just to set the scene, Jesus is up on a mountain uh, somewhere in the hill country of Galilee. He gets away from the crowds who have been gathering around him as he was teaching in the synagogues and performing miracles. He grabs his disciples, goes up to the mountain, and he begins to teach them. And he goes through the Beatitudes, which, if you recall, are countercultural statements regarding the path of true and divine well-being, which lead to, uh, which are the opposite of what the world defines as the path of happiness, which are things that are commonly, uh, or commonly things like wealth, leisure, comfort, self-gratification, and so on. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, those who mourn the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, the persecuted. And then he says, be salt and light of the world that those who are in the kingdom of God, who are of the kingdom of God, are to be a preservative of truth and shine the light of God in the darkness so that others may see him and give glory to him. And then he says a very important statement that sets the tone for the rest of the sermon that he did not come to abolish the law, but he came to fulfill it. Jesus is not contradicting, he is not supplanting, he is not modifying the law of God, but he is the ultimate fulfillment of it. And so recall what Jesus says back in verse 20. He says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. An easier way to read this might be unless that your righteousness goes deeper than that of the scribes and the the Pharisees. Basically saying that unless you go deeper to the true meaning and the true intent of the law of God, you are going to miss the type of greater righteousness that Jesus calls us to. It's about the posture of the heart rather than adherence to legalistic application. You see, what the Pharisees had done was they had lessened or twisted the law of God into legalism, and they had done this for the sake of themselves. They had been zealous for looking perfect and having it all together on the outside wall and the inside being spiritually dead and rotten. They misinterpreted the law, all the while misleading the people of God away from the truth of God and the very character and nature of God. And so the point of the Old Testament law was not given so that the people of God would obey him in rule only. It was always intended for heart obedience. That God's people would obey with a heart disposition that reflects its true intention. And what Jesus does from verse 21 all the way through verse 48 point us back to a greater righteousness. He does this through six antitheses, six contradictory statements or examples where we are pointed away from legalistic adherence and towards greater righteousness. He addresses things like hatred where he says, uh, you shall not commit murder, but if you hate your brother in your heart that you have already committed murder. Uh, He addresses things like lust in the context of adultery that even lusting over, after somebody with or looking at somebody with lustful intent is the same as committing adultery. He deals with divorce and oaths, and as we'll study this morning, retaliation and loving your enemies. This greater righteousness that Jesus demands of us goes far beyond mere obedience of the law, and it is about a heart that is fully oriented towards God, and it is evidenced by our relationship with others. And so pick it up in our reading in verse 38. He says, You have heard it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. Again, what Jesus is saying is that the scribes and the Pharisees have taught you to read the Old Testament law this way, but what I'm doing is I'm teaching you to read the Old Testament law properly. And he goes on to addressing the law of retaliation. In some of your commentaries, you might see that term lex talionis. It's a Latin term for the law of retaliation. It's an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And this did not just exist in the Old Testament. In fact, it's one of the oldest laws in human civilization going as far back to the 18th century BC in the kingdom of Babylon. The Lex Talionis, the eye for, law of retaliation, eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And this law of retaliation is exemplified in the Old Testament three separate times in Exodus 21, Leviticus 24 and Deuteronomy 19. You don't have to turn there, but allow me to read a couple of these to you. In Exodus 21, in, starting in verse 22, it says, When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman, so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Leviticus 24, starting in verse 17, it says, whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. Whoever takes an animal's life shall make it good, life for life. If anyone injures his neighbor, he has done it, as he has done it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth whatever injury he has given, a person shall be given back to him. At first glance, these texts seem aggressive and violent because they are. But without proper context, you would think that Moses was permitting personal revenge, that he was permitting personal retaliation. But in each of these examples, there are a couple of things that we need to understand. One, this applied specifically to, For the civil courts to guide the judges this was for them it was for the judges to guide the people of god according to the law of god therefore it was not applied to the individual it was never about personal vengeance to apply this as permitting personal vengeance misses the entire point of this aspect of the law there are legal principles here the legal principles of the law of retaliation in the old testament are two things. One, it was God's means of maintaining justice and purging evil from his people. God is a God of order. He expected and had uh, commands for his people to operate in that same way. Two is the punishment could never exceed the crime. For example, you could never be executed for stealing somebody's loaf of bread. Uh, You couldn't be hanged for robbing somebody's livestock. In Middle Eastern cultures, even today, you can get your hand chopped off for stealing. Makes you think twice about stealing. So Jesus references the Old Testament law and then affirms and explains the true meaning of the law with divine authority. He says, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. Now, Jesus makes a stunning statement here. To those who heard this, as is consistent with much much of this sermon— When he says, do not resist, he's zooming in on man's natural bent for revenge. Jesus says, listen, retribution is not the way. It's it's just not the way. In the kingdom of heaven, the ethic code isn't equitable retribution, but in fact, it is no retribution. Even to those who we have a tendency to deem unworthy of such grace. He's saying, as a Christian, we shouldn't retaliate when we are wronged. And as we'll see in the next few verses, the Christ follower responds with greater concern for the other person than themselves, with humility and kindness and grace and generosity. And so the question to ask ourselves, is our aim to have an unselfish disposition towards others that replaces the concern that we have for ourselves? In other words, leave justice to the Lord justice ultimately belongs to him. Seek rather the good of others rather than the satisfaction of your own revenge. And some of you have heard of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a German Lutheran pastor who during World War II was captured by the Nazis for an alleged plot on Hitler, and he was placed in concentration camps and moved from concentration camp to concentration camp until he was ultimately executed at the hands of the Nazis. He had this to say about retaliation. The only way to overcome evil is to let it run itself to a standstill because it does not find the resistance it is looking for. Resistance merely creates further evil and adds fuel to the flames. But when evil meets no opposition and encounters no obstacles, but patient endurance, its sting is drawn. And don't miss this. At last it meets an opponent that is more than its match. This is deeply biblical retaliation never overcomes evil, but meekness always does. And some of us might be tempted to think that meekness is weakness, but it really isn't. Meekness puts you in a position of great strength because it causes the other person who insulted you to become weak for the very reason Bonhoeffer puts it. It meets an opponent that's more than its match. And so then Jesus gives us four practical illustrations to explain the greater righteousness required by the citizens of the kingdom. He addresses matters of personal honor, my dignity. He addresses personal possessions, my stuff. He addresses personal liberty, my time, my service. And he addresses personal wealth, my money. We won't spend a great deal of time explaining each of these as they really are very simple and they don't require a lot of uh, exegetical acrobatics to understand, but I do want to preface these with two key points. One in this, in the fifth antithesis, or in the fifth antithesis, the big idea here, the main idea is that the Christian believer does not operate or stand or on his or her own personal rights. We are citizens fundamentally of the kingdom of God first and foremost, and that means that we operate in a way that is in alignment with his will and not our personal rights. The second preface is this, that there is room for discernment in these, and I'll explain some of those as we go along, but let's look at these in turn. The back half of verse 39 says, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. So what is this all about? Uh, Jesus addresses personal honor here. The slapping on the cheek represents an attack on our personal dignity, and it is one of insult rather than personal or physical violence. Uh, an open-handed back slap to the face, which he is referencing here, was one of the most offensive forms of contempt in the ancient Near East. If you wanted to position yourself as superior and insult someone to the point where you wanted to make them in, or feel inferior Uh, you would slap them in the face. But Jesus calls us to not only accept the slap on the face, accept the insult, but also turn the other cheek and offer that one as well. And that takes a great deal of humility. How can we possibly do that? How can Christians respond to that in that way? First, our honor is not our priority. Second, We follow the example of Christ who himself faced humiliation and mocked when he was on trial before the high priest. Thirdly, we should maintain our gospel witness even amongst the most cruel of critics. And lastly, we put our trust in God to vindicate, for God to seek retribution, not ourselves. So does this mean that we avoid self-defense when someone tries to smash in our face and take our money and run? No. does this mean that if we are in an abusive relationship that we should just continually turn the other cheek and endure the abuse day after day after day? Absolutely not. What it does mean is that Christ is addressing the natural posture of the heart, that Christians should walk on the road of humility and be different from those of the world. Next, Jesus addresses personal possessions, in verse 40, it says, if anyone were to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Charles Spurgeon, in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, wrote this, better to lose your suit of clothes than to involve yourself in a suit of law. Uh, it would be bad enough for someone in this time and culture to sue for someone's tunic. That was essentially the undergarment, a very basic, fundamental piece of clothing. It was simple. It was an undergarment. But to not stop there and then freely and turn around and then freely give your coat is a much larger and incomprehensible action. The coat served many purposes. Uh, one, it, it was way more expensive. It was way more valuable. Typically, it was adorned. It was fashionable, right? It, it held a certain status that your coat spoke about who you were as, as, uh, in, in society, spoke of your reputation, but it also served as like a blanket, had many purposes like a shepherd would be out in the field and going to bed under the under the trees out in the pasture he would take off his cloak and he would protect himself from the cold elements by using it as a blanket so we need to picture ourselves in this scene to understand that the people hearing this were shocked uh, but they're also probably laughing at the same time because Jesus is basically giving them this imagery of nakedness he says don't just give your tunic don't just give your undergarment which is not very valuable but also give up what is more valuable than what was originally demanded. The principle being communicated when we find ourselves in this type of situation is that when someone is after us, when someone is suing us, Jesus says, just let them have it. Don't just let them have what they're asking for, but let them have it all. But we sit here and we say, but, but my rights. I have rights. But Jesus says, certainly you are above Your rights because you belong to the kingdom of heaven. You are a citizen of the kingdom of God. And if you understand the gospel, if someone comes after your stuff, it's really a non issue. It's neither here nor there. Just let them have it. Ultimately, it all belongs to God, it is His. Everything we have, we have because God gave it to us. So, how do we do that? Because we as Christians, we aren't attached to the things that we possess. We aren't attached. This one goes a little deep in our hearts because we naturally have a tendency to attach ourselves to our stuff, right? If I lose my stuff, what am I going to have? The answer is freedom. The answer is true freedom because you are fully invested in the things of God rather than the things of this world. Verse 41 says this, and if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Uh, Jesus now goes and addresses personal liberty. Uh, This is a time when Israel was occupied by the Roman Empire. And under Roman law, a soldier could be marching along and force a person on the side of the road, particularly it had to be a non-Roman citizen, so it was somebody from a conquered people group, uh, to carry their stuff. But they would be limited on carrying their stuff up to a thousand paces. That's where we get this term mile. It was a mili, which in that term, it translates to a thousand paces. Uh, Jesus is saying that when our personal liberty is infringed, our response according to the gospel is that we are so free from insisting on our rights that we want to serve even more. Can you imagine the reaction from the Roman soldiers in the first century after Jesus said this, Christians, that Christians were willingly and joyfully going the second mile? Not only their reaction, But think of the opportunity the Christians had to witness to the soldier, to proclaim the gospel of Jesus as the soldiers were walking alongside them questioning as to why they kept going more. When the gospel has taken a hold of you, your reaction at the end of the first mile is to joyfully go another mile. We're different from everyone else. The natural man says, I've got my rights. I will only do what is required of me, but the gospel says, how can I serve more? Lastly, Jesus addresses personal wealth in verse 42. Uh, Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Again, we need to understand that Jesus is addressing the heart posture here. Uh, You might think that there is a contradiction because doesn't Paul say in his letter to the uh, Thessalonians uh, that if a man won't work, that he won't eat? Uh, didn't we also just study in our Proverbs Bible study, in, in the men's and women's Bible study, that we are to run away from taking on debt for our neighbor? We should use discernment when we give, right? Uh, would, we, would we give to somebody that's asking for money, with holding up a sign that says, I need money for alcohol when they're stone cold drunk on the side of the road? Probably not. We should use discernment. But the principle that Jesus is saying is we are to live in a way in which we are not tied to our wealth. Especially in our Western culture, there are situations that we find ourselves in that challenge our wealth and challenge our security that we have in our wealth. When we find our security in Christ, when our treasure is stored up in the kingdom of heaven, we become unattached to the sense of security that we find in our earthly possessions, in our earthly wealth. He's getting to the heart of how the gospel changes our lives and sets us free from the love of money, to put our trust in the Lord to supply all of our needs, not in ourselves. And so we have four illustrations that should encourage us with the desire to think on how we would apply these principles as an individual Christian in our own lives. We need to seriously consider that when our honor, when our possessions, when our liberty, when our wealth is challenged, do we retaliate and stand on our personal rights or do we seek to serve and to imitate Christ? It is in our reactions that say a great deal more than our actions, for it is in the reactions that tell you far more about the character of a person. So Jesus moves on to the sixth and final antithesis as we deal with the topic of love as it relates to our heart's disposition towards our enemies. Read with me as we look again in verse 43 through 48. Uh, You have heard it was said, or what, are, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. A quick exegetical note here. Uh, love your neighbor, where, where Jesus is deriving this from, is in fact taken from the Old Testament law. But hate your neighbor is not from the Old Testament. It was typical rabbinical teaching at that time on the matter of love. In the time of the Pharisees, there had been a reworking of the law. Love your neighbor and hate your enemy was the way in which they had summarized the second table of the law. That is commandments 5 through 10, which deal with our horizontal relationships with others. Let me give you the case backdrop here. In Leviticus 19 verse 18, where Jesus is pulling this from, Leviticus 19, it says, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. That deals specifically with your neighbor in the context of covenant community. But notice what Moses also says in Exodus. Exodus 23 verse 4, if you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving it with him. You shall rescue it with him. Also notice Leviticus 19 and verse 33. When a stranger sojourns sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So what the question ultimately comes down to is this, what the question at the time of Jesus sitting there on the mount was, who is my neighbor? That's the question for us today. Who is my neighbor? Who is your neighbor? Who do I have a responsibility to love? You can imagine the shock when Jesus gave the parable of the good Samaritan. They were probably sitting there thinking, what do you mean by good? The Samaritans are our enemies. In Luke chapter 10, a lawyer asks Jesus what he needs to do to have eternal life. So what does Jesus do? Jesus asks for his interpretation of the law. And the lawyer responds that you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. But notice the response from the lawyer in verse 29, Luke 10, 29. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? We all know the story. A man was robbed, beaten, left for dead on the side of the road. A priest passes by. He sees him and goes around him. A Levite comes next, does the exact same thing. The two people who were categorically defined as this man's neighbor. But the Samaritan, this man's enemy, had compassion on him and cared for him and did much more than what he needed to do. So then Jesus says in verse 36, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, you go and do likewise. The lawyer knew at that moment that he had fallen into the same line of thinking that the Pharisees did, that he did not view his neighbor as a universal term to mean all of the people in whom God had created, but as directly relating to his own people, we read that parable and think, well, how, how could someone just pass by that man on the road? It's obvious. Like, who would do that? But just in case we get too high on our horse, we do much of the same. We all have enemies. Every single one of us has enemies. Some of us just happen to have more than others. Amen? We say things like, I will speak to those people who are nice to me but I will not speak to those people who do not treat me the way in which I want or like to be treated. We say things like, I will love those who have earned their rights, but I will mistreat those who have not earned that right. But there's another issue here besides defining who is our neighbor. We come to this term love. Ultimately, love is defined by God's love. We have a tendency, because we've all been trained to think, it's in our culture, it's in our education, it's, in, it's everywhere around us that we, are, we tend to think that love is somewhere along the lines of a more worldly definition, which is some type of emotionally driven sentimentalism. It's a sappy, butterflies-in-your-stomach type of love. But there is another way to define it and understand love based on the teaching of Jesus this might be a helpful definition for us. Biblical love is the act of the will accompanied by emotion that leads to action on behalf of its object and it is motivated by obedience to God. Let me say that again. Biblical love is the act of the will accompanied by emotion that leads to action on behalf of its object and it is motivated by obedience to God. The picture, of this love is, the picture of this type of love is exemplified in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is there and he's praying to God the Father that the cup of wrath may pass from him. But what does Jesus say? What does he say? He says, not my will but yours be done. Jesus chose to love his bride, the church and had emotions so intense that he sweat drops of blood, and it then manifested into action. And we know what that action was, that he went to the cross and he died for the sins that you and I are guilty of. He died for his bride, the church. Likewise, Jesus calls us to action. Look at what he says in verse 44. Pray for those who persecute you, This is not a new concept exclusive to the New Testament. Let's briefly look at an example of this in the Old Testament. In Jeremiah chapter 29, the prophet Jeremiah writes this letter to the people of Israel, reminding them that God himself is sending his people into exile into Babylon. And he says that you will be slaves to the Babylonians. They will burn your cities down. They will rape, pillage, plunder, destroy, and while you are in exile as a slave and treated less than a human, he says in verse 7, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find welfare. This is not a new idea. The God of the Old Testament is the same God of the New Testament love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. We sometimes forget that in our sin and in our rebellion, we were once enemies of God. And in our hostility, we were justly owed nothing but the wrath and vengeance of God. But we were given grace that we didn't deserve. And we were imputed a righteousness that we could never attain on our own, except by the blood of Christ which redeems us. So how then, how then do we dare respond to people with hate? How dare we hold grudges and we sit in the mud and the muck of our contempt? We love our enemies. You don't have to like them. It's not emotional. But you are commanded to love them. You and I are commanded to do that. Think about this. When we hold on to anger towards people, when we sit in that contempt, when we sit in that anger, and we hate people and refuse to obey God by having a heart disposition of love towards them, what we are actually doing is we are saying that we do not trust in God to make it right. We would rather let someone feel the sting of our anger to feel the sting of our hatred than to let God deal with them. That's what we're saying when we refuse to obey God in this regard. Second, love for our enemies is also evidence of our sonship. Look at verse 45. So that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. When Jesus is saying, so that you may be sons of your father, he is saying, so that you may demonstrate so that you may act like, so, the, so that it may be shown to others that you are sons of your father. By the way, you can only do this as a byproduct of a regenerated heart. You cannot do this as an unconverted person. Not, because it's, not that it's difficult to do, but rather it is impossible to do as an unconverted person. The only way this love happens is that it is given to us by God himself. We love only because he first loved us. When I actually love my enemies, I should fall on my face and thank God because there is nothing in me that can pull that off. That I have evidence of sonship and it is only by God's grace that I have that evidence of sonship. Third, our love for our enemies is an expression of God's love for his enemies. He makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. If we're honest, we get really frustrated by this. In our fallenness, we want nothing more than for the evil people to suffer and for us to prosper. Do you actually believe that you deserve the mercy of God and they don't? Think about what you would have to say to God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, the sustainer of all things, in order to justify him not being merciful to your enemy or you not loving your enemy. You would have to have the capacity to say to God, God, don't you see that they are not as worthy as I am of your mercy and your love? Don't you see how special and wonderful I am? Didn't you hear what my mother said about me when I was a kid? Do you see how ridiculous that sounds? God gives common grace to everyone, the evil and the good. He makes his sun rise. He makes the rain fall down on the evil and the good. We have to understand that. Our love towards our enemies is an outgrowth of the love that God showed us. It is the only way that this works. But Brad, you have no idea what they did to me. I really don't. But I'm willing to bet it's not worse than what they did to Jesus as he was nailed to the tree, naked, beaten, mocked, beard torn, thorns piercing his head, who said with a breath that was almost impossible to get out, Father, forgive them for they know not what they are doing. Yeah, but that's Jesus. He's the perfect sinless son of God. Okay? Since that's not good enough. How about Stephen in Acts chapter 7? After he gave his sermon, it says this in uh, chapter 7, verse 54. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus, standing at the right hand of God, And when he had said this, he died. Stephen, a fallible, weak man in the flesh, just like you, just like me, looked at the face, inside the face of those who were about to kill him and demonstrated Christian love. So let me ask you again, what was that wrong that they did to you? What is that grudge that you are holding on to? The love we show to our enemies is defined by God's love, not the world's. It is motivated by our obedience to God. It is evidence of our sonship. It is an outgrowth or an outpouring of the love that God has for his enemies, which includes you and includes me. So what does this mean? It doesn't mean a butterfly-saturated emotional type of sentimentalism. Here's another thing. This love doesn't mean we simply don't hate somebody. We just don't choose to not hate. But no, it's a positive intentional action. It actually looks like that we love our enemies. It's not that we just don't hate, but we intentionally and actually love. And it's evidenced by that. It means that we treat people with dignity and respect, for we are all created in the image of God. It means that we care for people more than we care for ourselves. It means that we pray earnestly for their well-being. It means that we pray earnestly for the hearts and minds of the most vile and evil person against you to be transformed by the gospel of Christ, that they experience the love that Christ has shown us. It means that as our culture drifts further and further away, the more our words, the more our thoughts, the more our convictions, and the more our conduct need to follow and be evidenced by the king in whose kingdom we we are citizens. We are to honor him. We are to honor Christ. We are to honor the king, to demonstrate the mercy that God has shown us. And this is hard to do. This is extremely difficult to do. Examining my own life these last couple weeks and studying for this passage, I realized that this is not the usual response that I have towards people. Bad Brad wants to come out at people. Sometimes quite often particularly at an umpire in the baseball field. <laughs> I was absolutely convicted by this passage these last couple weeks. And now I get the joy of preaching this passage this morning and share in the beating that I've been getting. <laughs> Spreading the joy. I'm just being real with you. There may be people around you today that are your enemies, love your enemies. There may be people in your own house that you have been treating like your enemy or they have been treating you like an enemy. Your spouse, your parents, your siblings. Love your enemies. There may be people who live next door to you that you can't even stand to strike a smile and wave at them. Love your enemies. There may be people who scream at you from the other side of the political aisle. Love your enemies. Enemies. Love your enemies like Christ. Love your Love your enemies like Christ loves your enemies. Just like He did with us. Because when you do, you might have the incredible privilege of seeing your enemy become your friend. Finally, Jesus says in verse forty-eight: Be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This describes the greater righteousness that verse 20 talks about and summarizes the entire section from verse 17 and on. How can we be perfect? Is God really asking something that is unattainable from us? Is God really asking something that we know is impossible for us to do, to be perfect? The Greek word here is the definition of completeness or wholeness. It does not mean flawless, or sinless. Greater righteousness is about the integrity of our entire person, our mind, our soul, our body. Our lives are to be consistent, to be whole, to be complete on the inside and on the outside. Greater righteousness that comprises our entire person, and it is brought in line with God's will as it is fulfilled in Christ Jesus. If you are here this morning without Christ, you need to realize that Christianity is not about trying really, really hard to be righteous. Our righteousness is actually nothing but filthy rags. It counts for nothing. But instead, you by faith rely on the only true righteous one who laid down his life for the unrighteous, the enemy like you, and like me. And when you come to Christ, when you respond by faith to his call, you could know that you will be reconciled to God, that you will be redeemed, that you will be regenerated, and you will be given a new heart. You'll experience the greater righteousness that Jesus calls us to through the transforming work of the Holy Spirit, both inside and outside. This complete life, this whole life, this perfect life is not found through our own best efforts. It is found in the one who is perfect. It is found in the full surrender into a relationship with Christ by faith alone. Be whole, just as your heavenly Father is whole. Those who come to Christ don't just receive forgiveness, but receive the transforming, cleansing work of the Spirit of God. We become a new creation. And then we can love our enemies. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy that you have shown us that we did not deserve, that we did not earn, that we can never earn. God, in our sin, in our depravity, in the deepest depth of our rebellion and our hostility towards you, you have called us out. You have given us a new life, a new heart. God, to serve you, to glorify you, to love others, to point people to you, to draw people unto yourself. God, help us remember that. Help us remember that it is not about us, that it is about loving you, and it is about loving others. Uh, give us the ability to do that well, because God, it is, in, it is impossible for us to do that without the work of your spirit, without the truth of your word penetrating our minds, going down into our hearts and outworking out into our hands. So God, convicts where conviction needs to occur in our lives. God, draw us to you, restore us, refresh us, make us new. God, for those that are not following you, that are sitting here. God, may you draw them unto you. May they see your goodness and your mercy in light of their rebellion and their hostility and their sinfulness. God, give them hope. Let them see. God, draw them to you. May they respond by faith. God, we thank you for everything. And it is in all things that we do, that we say, that we think, in our conduct, in our lives. May we seek to glorify you. We pray these things in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen.